And then uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 7 through 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. It's on page 1111 of uh, the Bible there. So last few weeks I've been, I've been starting with these, these questions. Um, have you run out of gas? When is Jesus coming back? What must you do to inherit eternal life? What's really important? What do you trust in? How much time do you have left? Well, this week's question is, are you humble and generous? Are you humble and generous? It's not hard to see how a Christian, a person that wants to follow in the footsteps of Jesus should emulate him. Um, We should want to be more like Christ, more like God. As we seek to be more like Jesus, we should be humble and generous people. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Tells us, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one was more humble than the Lord Jesus. He did not cling to his rights. No one was more generous. He gave his very life as a ransom for us. Philippians 2 continues and tells us to to have the same mind amongst yourselves. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Not to look to our own interests, but to the, the interests of others. But the truth is we all struggle with this to a degree or not, our flesh wants to look out for itself. What we want, self-centeredly. Or sometimes we genuinely believe that we are better or more important than others. And so we elevate ourselves and we push others down. Humility is not easy for us. Generosity, God gave his only son. He is the giver of every good gift. He is a generous God. Christ offered his very life. He didn't hold anything back. We're going to be like Christ. The Christian life should be marked by humility and generosity. Now, I I put the word radical <clears throat> excuse me, in front of uh, each of those words in your outline. Because they are radically different than what the world tells us to do. The world tells us to, to toot our own horn. You know? If you don't tell people about your accomplishments, then no one will. We're supposed to spike the football in the end zone. Social media TikTok, Snapchat, and and all the others, full of people that are saying, look at me, look at me. It's all about me. The world tells us that it's all about you. But the Bible tells us that we are not the center of our universe. God is. 
So the Christian life requires a radical sense of humility compared to the world. A radical sense of generosity that the world will not understand. Why, why do you give church, or why do you give money to the church every week? Why do you give money to the church every week? Why do you give money to the poor, to those, this organization or that one? Don't you, don't you know what you could be getting for yourself? I mean, I, I, I bet if you added it all up, you could buy a brand new car or a brand new truck. You would have enough to make the monthly payments on a brand new car. If you would just keep that money for yourself, what are you doing? You complain about that piece of, of junk that you're driving. Not this money. Why are you giving it away? But we know that we are not living for this world, but for the next. And God has called us to be generous people without looking for anything in return. When we are radically humble and generous, we're not only becoming more like Christ, we become an amazing testimony to the world that looks at us and says, why? Why are you so different? Why are you so different? And then we can tell them about the amazing humility and generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the parables that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at two parables together that, that may seem unrelated. Um, some people um, separate them, um, but I believe that they're connected in a, in a teaching lesson on humility and generosity. Even the way Jesus tells them uh, connects them when he says, and he also said to the man, um, as he continues with the next parable. So, um, so this morning, we're going to look at them together. The parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet. But before we do a little background to set, that sets up why Jesus tells them this parable. Because um, there's, there's some context. Context is important. So Jesus had been going around and, and been teaching the crowd. And everywhere he went, the Pharisees were following him and looking for ways to trap him kept questioning him, watching every move, looking for a reason to, to be able to trap him and accuse him of something. <clears throat> and Jesus was not shy about exposing their hypocrisy, shining a, a light on the true condition of their, of their hearts. It was a, a constant back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. So it happens that a Pharisee throws a, a dinner banquet this was something that the elites liked to do. It was a, a huge social event. And people would work hard to get included, to be invited to one of these. It was a, a way to, to work your way up in the ranks of society, to increase your social standing, to be invited to one of these banquets. It was the same thing about hosting a banquet, a chance to invite some influential and important people that would increase your status get to rub elbows with some of the important people around town. Which makes the, the circumstances that lead to, the, to these two parables being told and, and their lessons that much more important. You see, Jesus was invited to one of these banquets on the Sabbath. And so was another man, 
a man with a condition called dropsy. This was a, a condition that, was, that caused people to retain fluid, likely caused by liver and, and kidney ailments, and, and possibly including cancer. And so it would have been very strange for these Pharisees to invite, to invite these two men, to invite Jesus and this man with dropsy. Jesus was someone that they hated. They hated Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. They would, he wouldn't increase their social status. And this sickly man with dropsy, well, well remember, as I've said before, the, the, the thinking of, of the Jewish people back then was, was sickness was a sign of judgment from God for your sin. And so if you were sick, it meant that you had some kind of unconfessed sin. Why would Pharisees invite somebody that they believed had some unconfessed sin to one of their dinners? It makes no sense. Of course, we know it was, it was all a setup. They wanted to trap Jesus. Would he break the Sabbath and heal this man? That's what they wanted to know. Of course he would. They knew he would. But Jesus knows exactly what they're up to, and he calls them out for it. He points out, despite their appearances, their attitude reveals the true condition of their hearts. And as he watches them, he sees another opportunity to teach them another, a couple more lessons about the condition of the heart. And that's where we pick up the parables. Read with me Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection the just." Now, as a quick aside, I, I want you to notice how many times the word invited is used in both of these parables. Nine times in the ESV, depending on what your translation it is, it could be more or less. But nine times in the ESV, it seems like Jesus is always talking about an invitation here. So, is he inviting you today? The first part of the parables here, Jesus addresses radical humility. To help us understand the scene here, let's, 
let's kind of look at how this would have been set up, this banquet here, the banquet set up. And so if you would have walked in here, how, typically how a banquet would be set up is there would be three couches, low-slung couches and low-slung tables, okay? And they would, be, they would be set up in the shape of a U. And so there would be the head table that would be like right here. And then there would be a table going down this side. And then there would be another one going down this side. And typically, the host would sit right in the very center of the head table. He'd sit right here in the center. This would be the place of honor for the host. And then, and then people would, would, would sit on either side of him, left or right. The inside would be left open. No one would sit inside there because that's where the servants would come in to be able to serve food and, and take care of the needs of those who were, who were at the banquet. And so everyone would be on the outside, and they would, they would recline on these low-slung couches. They would, they would lean back on their left elbow. And then they would just sit there, and, and that's how they would eat. If you remember uh, Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, that's how John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, would recline and laid his head on the breast, the bosom of Jesus. Because he was sitting right next to Jesus, a place of honor. And so you would sit. That's how, that's how it would be arranged. The host, the, the person of honor would sit right in the middle. And then on either side of him would be the, the, the distinguished guest. And then next to them would be distinguished guest. And then as you moved down the sides, it would be less and less important. And the least important people would be, would be sitting on the ends of the tables going down the sides. And so you imagine yourself being invited to one of these banquets. And so you would walk into the room and you would see the setup here, these tables, these couches. And so you would have to walk in. And then you would have to look around. Where do I sit? Hmm. Where should I sit down here? You just begin to size up your competition. You look around the room. Hmm, am I more important than him? What about that guy? Is my title more important? Where do I sit here? Do I have more money than he does? Am I dressed better than them? Where, where do I sit? And so at some point, you make a decision. You size everyone up. You consider yourself, and then you pick a spot. Now, does this happen in modern society? Maybe not with the U-shaped couches, reclined on her, on her elbow and eating food. But does this kind of thing happen today? Of course. It happens all the time. You get invited to a, a wedding or a banquet, a big dinner, and you walk in, what do you do? If it's not assigned seating, if there are no table cards that says that you're to sit here, it's open seating, what do you do? Do you walk in and immediately find a table just to make sure that you get one? Hey, everyone, over here, over here, I got, I got us a nice big table over here. 
You pick the best table. You know, the one with a view or the one that's near the food or, or by the window or up front so you can hear the speeches. Or What table do you pick? When they dismiss for food, do you run right up so that you're first in line? So you can eat before everyone else? To, you know, to make sure that, that you get first pick of the, the good stuff, you know? Make sure that you're able to pile your plate up high. Or do you hang back? You let others go first. Knowing that that may mean that you might not get some of the best stuff. You know, you might get some of the, the fatty pieces of meat. The smaller chunks, you know. Piece of chicken that the, the skin has been pulled off and doesn't look as nice, you know. Maybe you've got to scrape the bottom of that macaroni and cheese. A little crusty. Might miss out on some of the goodies. But, you know, actually that's it's okay. Because you could probably stand to lose a few pounds anyway, so that's all right. Because you're more worried about others than yourself. It happens all the time in, in so many different ways. You're riding with somebody someplace. It's a group of you, and you're going to go someplace. Who rides shotgun? Hmm? Right? First thing, everyone walks up. Shotgun! Who sits in the front? Who gets stuck in the back? Going to go hang out with some friends. Maybe, maybe when you were younger, when you were a teenager, you know, and you go to hang out with friends and play some video games, you know, a group of you would get together. Go over to your friend's house, and there's five of you, but there's only four controllers. Somebody has to set out and just watch. Who? You grab one of the controllers, because what kind of fun is it to sit and watch people play? Or a game of pool, or, or riding bikes, or riding skateboards. There's only so many, and somebody's going to be left behind. One short. Sitting around a campfire. There's not enough camp chairs. Somebody's got to sit on that log. Do you grab one of the chairs? Or do you grab the log? All the time we make little evaluations about how important we are. How important we think we are. Our focus is either on what we get or on other people. All the time we have situations where we're evaluating ourselves and we either elevate ourselves or we elevate others. That's exactly the type of situation Jesus confronts these Pharisees with. Like many of Jesus' parables, the basic lesson is easy to understand. Don't take a seat of honor. Take a lower seat. You, you could take a, a, this a, as a secular strategy to, to look humble. To look humble. Don't immediately sit up front in a place of honor. The, the, the host could come up and, and, and tell you to move. Then you gotta, then you got to walk that walk of shame in front of everybody. 
And how embarrassing would that be? Probably would end up on the, the very end because that would be the last place open because everyone else was jockeying for position too. And so the only open seat would be the one on the very end. And guess what? Hey, buddy, you got to get up. And you're making that walk of shame in front of everybody. Don't do that. Instead, sit at the lowest seat. And then when the host comes in, it says, Fred, what are you doing sitting there? You're not the lowest guy. Come on, move up here. Then, then you get up. You get to get up and you get to strut your stuff in front of everybody. That's right. Moving on up. Uh-huh. All the way to the top. Remember the Jeffersons? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you could, you could take this as a, a secular strategy to appear humble, but it's actually just a backdoor way to try to elevate yourself, right? And that's probably the lesson that many of these Pharisees took from this. But that's not the point. Jesus' point is, is much deeper than appearances. He's concerned with the condition of the heart point is found in verse 11. For everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we're not doing this so that we get a reward and a feast in this life. We humble ourselves because we want to be like Jesus. And we know that our Father in heaven will see us. He will see what we're doing with a right heart, with a right attitude. Because of a heart of humility is what we're supposed to have as, as Christians. We do it not because we're, we're living for this life, but for the life to come. And we know that He will exalt us to whatever He thinks is right. This is how we're supposed to live as Christians here in this world how we are supposed to live as Christians in this world. But what's our biggest obstacle to this? Ourselves. Ourselves. Raise your hands. How many people here like someone who is arrogant and prideful and rubs it in your face all the time? Come on, raise your hands. Somebody's got to love an arrogant and prideful person. Come on. Nobody? Nobody? No hands went up. You know why? Because no one, like someone that comes in with a prideful, arrogant attitude that says, I'm better than everyone else. I deserve more than everyone else. Don't you know who I am? But you know what we all do like? Someone that is really kind and nice, willing to help everyone. That is a humble attitude that defers to others. We all like that. We all just have a hard time being that. 
The eternal principle of Jesus' teaching is if you don't humble yourself, you're going to be humbled. If you're not willing to humble yourself, you are going to be humiliated. If you don't humble yourselves now and bow to him now, someday, one day, you will. You will bow to him in humiliation. But, but if you humble yourselves, He will exalt you. He will exalt you in this life and in the next. So how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we humble ourselves? Key is we need to recognize who we are before the Lord. Utter sinners deserving wrath, judgment, and eternal judgment. With a a sin nature that leads us in word, thought, and deed to do things that we shouldn't do. It's who we are. Yet there is a gracious God that sent His Son to die on a cross for my sin. For my sin. To redeem me when I was hopeless. Not the sins of the world. That's too easy. No. For the sins of Kurt. My sins. When I was hopeless and unworthy and and had no chance to save myself. He sent His Son to die for me. That's who I am. I am no better than any of you. No matter the car I drive, the suit I wear, the money in my bank account, or the position I hold, I am no better than any of you. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen. My worth comes from the fact that God created me in His image for His glory. Your worth comes from the fact that God created you in His image for His glory. I am no better than you and you are no better than me. We are equal in God's eyes. We are equal at the foot of the cross. So it doesn't matter what you have what you drive or where you come from, what you look like or or how you dress. None, none of that matters. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Proverbs 25, 6-7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. James 4, 6. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives grace. More grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How many of you want more of God's grace? How many of you want more of God's grace? I want more of God's grace. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And He will give you more grace. Later, in the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be humbled. Exalted. Remember? Remember that parable? Tax collector? I thank you that I'm I'm not like this guy. Man, I am so glad that I'm not him. The tax collector beat his butt. Have mercy on me. He recognized who he was before the Lord. He humbled himself. So are we more worried about our status and what people think about us or are we more concerned about our character and what God thinks of us? Now there are some true dangers involved in having a lack of humility too. First one, probably the most important one, is salvation. A lack of humility says, I'm a good person but I'm a good person. Compared to most of the world, I'm pretty darn darn good. I mean, look. Look at the things that I do. Don't beat my wife. Don't beat my kids. I work a job. I pay my taxes. My yard's kept up nice. I volunteer down at the soup kitchen. I don't swear. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I'm a good person. I don't need repentance. I don't need repentance. I'm good. God will let me in. That is the ultimate danger and pride and arrogance. Think that I don't need it. I'm good enough. Sanctification. Real danger. I'm so I'm so far ahead of all of you. See, I am so much more mature than you guys. I mean, <clears throat> you just don't have the knowledge that I have. See, I've studied scriptures. I have wisdom and knowledge that you just don't have. I don't need to study or change anymore. You can't teach me anything. I already got it all figured out. I don't need your Bible study. 
service. Well, I'm here. You're welcome. Entertain me now. What's going on in the service today? What do you have for me? Hopefully something a little bit better than you had last week. Or there's a work day. Oh, we'll let the little people do those kinds of things. I'll supervise. I'll make sure that they get the stuff done that needs to get done. So you see yourself as being above serving in certain capacities. Oh no, <laughs> not me. I don't clean toilets. I don't mop floors. I mean, I'll make sure somebody gets that done, but not me. I mean, I did that a long time ago. I am so beyond that anymore. But God expects radical <clears throat> humility out of His people. God expects radical humility out of, his, out of His people. The world says, yeah, climb the ranks. Get to the top. And you have all the little people, all the schmucks below you. You move them around. But you, you don't get your hands dirty. No, you keep clean. You're too important for that kind of work. God expects radical humility out of His people. Now let's follow that up with the next parable that Jesus told those that were gathered. Radical generosity. Let's read verses 12-14 through 14 again. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He says, do not invite. It probably means don't always or don't only invite. And then he gives two lists of four. First list, your friends. Don't invite your friends. I like my friends. You like your friends? I like my friends. I like to hang out with my friends. I can, I can relax and just sit back and, 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 and be myself with my friends. I have more fun with them. When I invite people that I don't know, I, I have to step out of my comfort zone, you know. I have to, to put in an effort to, to make conversation with them, you know. You have to talk to get to know people. and It's, it's easier and more fun with friends, isn't it? See, that's about me. It's about me. I like to hang out with my friends more than people that I don't know. So that's what I like. Brothers, your relatives, your family. Most of us like to hang out with our family. I mean, I'm sure there's a few exceptions to that, but especially around the holidays, we like to hang out with our family. We want to have the whole family home for the holidays, don't we? These are the people that we know best and that know us best. 
We can say and do things with, with them that we can't with anyone else. Your rich neighbors. I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with their rich neighbors? Who wouldn't want to? I mean, you invite them to your cookout. Well, eventually they're going to have to invite you to theirs, right? And let's face it, their New York strips are going to be so much better than the barbecue chicken that I'm going to grill. So I'm going to invite them. And I'll get a nice little return on that investment. Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows the motivation. He says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus is, is saying, don't invite people for what you're going to get back. Don't invite them for what you'll get out of it. Instead, do this, verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Another list of four to offset the first list. Instead of your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, this is who you're supposed to invite. The poor, crippled, lame, blind. That's a radically different guest list. Why do we do this? Verse 14, the principle. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection, the just. There's a spiritual principle here in our spiritual growth and our sanctification that we should be radically humble and radically generous. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Matthew, Matthew 25, 35 through 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the, the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these my brothers, you did it for me. Now that same list of four shows up in Luke 14.21 for another feast. We looked at that a few weeks back in Matthew 22 also. The feast that the invited guests were uh, refused to come to. So God sends His servants out into the streets to invite others to come. And who are they to invite? In, in Luke 18, um, or Luke 14, the list is specific about who they're to invite in slightly different order, but it's the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Type of people that would have been excluded from the temple. 
The ones the hypocritical Pharisees would have looked down upon. But we should have open doors to them. We should be radically different. Radically generous to those that are often overlooked, excluded. People that can't repay you for your time and effort and your expense. People that can't help you climb the social ladder. People that can do absolutely nothing to improve your social standing. People who most need to experience that love and generosity. Radical generosity. You're not worried about what you're going to get out of it. Told to be generous when we won't get anything in return. It's a principle throughout all of Scripture. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you give, you give in a way that no one knows that you're giving. Because it's not about people knowing and and thinking good about you giving. It's because you're giving out of of a heart of, of generosity. A heart that is seeking to follow the example of your Savior. 1 John 3.17 If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You value your material possessions, your time, your talents, whatever it is, more than serving the needs of somebody else. Well, we know where your heart is. Radical generosity comes from a heart that recognizes how radically generous the Lord was with us. When we had absolutely nothing to offer Him, and yet He held nothing back. When we remember what He has done for us, we can't help but do the same. So I want to close with the same questions that I started with. Are you humble? Are you genuinely humble? It's not so much about thinking less of ourselves, just thinking of ourselves less. Not in a bad way that you neglect yourself, but to recognize that you are no better or no worse than anyone else. They are no better or no worse than you are. Even those that look a mess. But by the grace of God go I. Do you have a proper view of yourself before the Lord? Are you generous? Some people are are generous to a fault. Give away money so freely that you, you really need to be careful. You need to make sure that you pay your own bills. Take care of your responsibilities. But for others, it's a real struggle. You're conditioned 
by the world to think that you need to save and hoard for a rainy day. Yes, we need to be good stewards with, with what the Lord has given us. We're to plan ahead. Some of us have this idea that we need to hoard so we can retire at 55 and we can go on a cruise every year. We can finally get that little beach house. You need to learn to be generous. The key to be generous, the, the, the key is to be generous when no one is looking. To do it as secretly as possible. Not to get prideful when you are generous. That's the other thing. Because then you end up going, well, huh? Yeah. Yep. I'm better than they are. See how generous I just was? I put a lot of money into the offering plate. See that family? I just helped out. That's right. That's right. That was me. No, because then you mess up the one about humility. Pray that the Lord will help you be radically generous and be radically humble about it. And that's hard. That's hard because every day we wake up with a sin nature that pulls us towards pride and selfishness. Every day. Are you humble? Are you generous? Now put those two together and ask yourself this. How could radical humility and generosity change the way we treat others? How could that cause us to live differently? What are some specific ways that we could live that kind of radical humility and generosity toward others? We need to ask ourselves, do we love people well? Do we love others well? Does our life exhibit these qualities? These qualities are required of a Christian. When there's a, a group work day, whether it's at church or, or at work or whatever your situation, school, co-op, there's a, a group work day and there's a list of things to do. We're all going to pitch in and, and get this all done. We all pitch in, you know, you know, many hands make light work. Do you jump in first to make sure that you get one of the good jobs, you know, one that doesn't get dirty, so that you're not stuck with, with ones that you don't want? Or do you jump up first because you, you truly want to be a servant? Yeah. What needs to be done? Let me, what can I do? I want to help. Or, or do you wait till the last? You wait till the last. Hoping that nothing's left on the list. Everyone else will get things done and, oh, look, oh, it's all, all crossed out. Well, I guess I'll just, I'll just kind of hang out and watch everybody else work. Or, or do you wait till last to do the jobs that no one else will do? Is your heart like, well, you know, I know, I know people because I, I know how I am. People are going to take all the good jobs and all the, the crummy jobs are going to be left. 
okay, I'll do them. What needs to be left? Oh, of course, clean the toilets. Yep, knew that one would be on there. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be first or the last. It's what's your heart? What's motivating that? Are you jumping up first so that you can, you can get the easy job? Are you jumping up first because you have a servant's heart? It's about the heart. When someone walks through those doors, maybe they're different than you. Whatever that difference is. Maybe they're, they're dressed up, or maybe they're not dressed up. Maybe they have a, a bunch of kids, or maybe they have no kids at all. Maybe they look different, they talk different. Tattoos and piercings, or maybe they're wearing bib overalls. When they walk in, do you look at them and go, what are they doing here? Hmm. Not sure. Not sure we want their kind here. Or are you completely indifferent? wonder who they are. Oh well, not my problem. I'm not the welcoming committee. Or do you say, oh look, a visitor. I wonder, I wonder who they are. I wonder, I wonder what brought them here. You know what? I'm going to go introduce myself and make, the, make sure they feel welcome. I know how it feels to, to be that one. Walk in and feel awkward. Have everyone look at you. You know, the Lord sent them here for me to serve them. Not here by accident. The Lord sent them here for a reason, for me to serve them. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to go find out how. Hi, my name is such and such. Brought you here. Tell me about yourself. I do for you. I pray for you. Radical humility is an attitude of the heart that recognizes that we are equal at the foot of the cross. Humility that seeks to take the lower level to serve the needs of others, to elevate them and, and their needs over ours. The Pharisees had a, a really religiosity that, that sought to elevate themselves and it revealed the condition of their hearts. Radical generosity gives with no expectation of return or investment. Not for what I can get, but for what I can give. An attitude of the heart that freely gives all that we have, all that we have, time, talent, money, resources, not holding anything back. Recognizing that Christ gave His all for us when we were, when we were the least of these. We give because He first gave to us. If we truly want to be like Jesus, we must show radical humility and be radically generous. If you want to be like Jesus, that's what you have to be. Because that's who He was. That is how 
he lived. And that's how he expects us to live in this world so that we can use those opportunities to point those people to the one who taught us how to live that way. Because he was that way first to us and he can be that way for them. May we all have a heart that Christ is the Lord. Make me a servant today. That's the song we're going to close with today. And I hope as we sing that song that that is truly the cry of your heart. That you consider, are you radically humble? Are you radically generous? Do you seek to serve yourself and have others serve you? Or do you seek to be a servant? May we be like Jesus and be a servant. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your words. We thank you again for the lessons that you teach us. That Jesus, you know us so well. You know the character of our hearts. You know our sinful nature and the things that, that motivate our actions. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take these lessons of humility and generosity. That we would not use them as a strategy to, to appear humble, to appear generous, to put on a show. It's the exact opposite. It's the heart of the Pharisees. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to truly have a transformed heart that recognizes that we do this because you first did it to us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be radically humble and radically generous to a world that desperately needs to know about the one who set that example. May you do this by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.